WTBN Pinellas Park. In order to be the church, we have to be in church. Take your family to church. The portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, when we put all of this together, we realize that when Jesus told us to pray for God's will to be done on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven, he was referring to willfully submitting ourselves to God's commands, his moral will. In other words, to pray for God's will to be done on earth is to pray for men and women to submit themselves to do what God has told them in his word to do. What a different world this would be if more of us prayed that way. And God's will really was done here on earth just as it is in heaven. We're glad you could be with us today for another verse-by-verse Bible class of the air. Pastor teacher Steve Kreloff is our instructor. For over 25 years now, Pastor Steve has been exercising his gift of expository or verse-by-verse teaching at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. That teaching ministry has expanded to include verse-by-verse ministries. Pastor Steve has been teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Today is the conclusion of his three-part message on the phrase, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be ready, if possible, to take notes and to follow along in our own Bibles. Here now is Pastor Steve. Jesus said, who by worrying can add any, any length of time to their life? You can't. That's why we shouldn't worry. Well, that's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. Don't take it to mean passivity. This is not fatalism. This is not starting to sing que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, so I don't do anything. No, Scripture teaches that man has responsibility. God holds people responsible, and yet he has he decreed all things. And so someone might say, well, I don't understand. How can you reconcile God's uh, sovereignty with human responsibility? And my response to that is you can't. Spurgeon, when asked that question, how do you, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? He said, I don't. I never reconcile friends. They are friends. Now, just because we don't know how they work together doesn't mean they don't. There's a, there's a built-in tension in scripture. It's a lot, it's like a lot of things in scripture where we don't understand, but that's by design. If we understood that, we'd, we'd be like God. We're not. In fact, someone said that if you try to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility, you will end up under a table repeating the Greek alphabet backwards. That's kind of a Bible college little joke because Bible school students and seminary students are into that stuff, but not backwards. No, it just means you can't do it. You'll become so confused. Just just don't try to weaken either God's sovereignty or human responsibility. Just understand God is totally sovereign. Everything that happens, happens because he's decreed it to happen, but do what you're supposed to do. Do what you're supposed to do. Now, I think that's helpful to understand in in light of what we're studying, because when Jesus told us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was not telling us to pray for God's decreed will to be done on earth, because, folks, it's always done on earth. Whatever God purposes to do will be done, regardless of whether or not people are aware of doing his will or not or regardless of whether they give wholehearted, eager participation in carrying out his sovereign plan and purposes. This isn't what Jesus means, pray for his decreed will. For example, Ephesians 3.11, in that 
in that reference, Paul refers to the coming of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding his life and ministry and death. And he states this, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything surrounding the death, the ministry, the burial, the ascension, the resurrection, all of that concerning Jesus Christ was ordained by God. Even in light of the fact that that God used, according to his decrees, he used men who were personally opposed to the will of God like Judas. He used Judas. Judas was opposed to the will of God. God used him to carry out his will. Uh, Pontius Pilate, pagan Roman governor who did an unjust thing. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty, and yet he sentenced him to, to die opposed to the will of God, but being used by God. His sovereign will, God's decreed, everything that happened, the events surrounding the death of Jesus Christ. Even though these men were not aware of God's decrees and they were not aware that they were being used by God and God still held them responsible for their sin, yet God ultimately accomplished what he chose to accomplish. Why? Because God decreed all of these events in the sense that man always does God's will, whether or not he even believes that God exists. But that's not what Jesus was referring to when he told us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It can't be that. So what, what other aspect are we talking about here? Not his decreed will, but folks, listen to me, his moral will. That's what we're to pray for, his moral will. His moral will are those commands found in Scripture for believers to obey, for all of us to obey. Once again, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the apostle mentions God's will. But this time he's referring not to his decreed will, his ordained will, but to his moral will. When he writes, for example, about slaves, he says that slaves should be doing the will of God from the heart. Those who were slaves in the Roman Empire ought to be obeying God from the heart. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul says this is, this is God's moral, moral will that those who are not married ought not to be engaging in sexual activity. That's the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. It's his moral will that we be a thankful, grateful people. Now, when we put all of this together, we realize that when Jesus told us to pray for God's will to be done on earth in the same way that it's done in heaven, he was referring to willfully submitting ourselves to God's commands, his moral will. In other words, to pray for God's will to be done on earth is to pray for men and women to submit themselves to do what God has told them in his word to do. Now, that will not fully take place until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. That will not fully take place. But when his kingdom on earth comes, then everyone who initially enters that kingdom will be committed to absolute obedience and submission to Christ. Now, I say initially, Because those who initially enter the kingdom are all all believers. But those who enter the kingdom without glorified bodies are going to have children. And those children are going to need to be converted just like everybody else. But initially, when that kingdom comes and those who enter it, they'll be committed to absolute obedience and submission to Christ. 
But it's in light of the fact, and, and here's the point of the Lord's Prayer, it's in light of the fact that his kingdom hasn't come yet and that Jesus does not reign as king over the hearts of most people that he tells us how to pray. We are to pray for his return and we are to pray for the coming of his kingdom on earth so that his will will be done and carried out on earth with the same zeal, the same desire, the same passion that it has always been carried out in heaven. Now listen very carefully. Even though the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer will take place only when Jesus returns and that kingdom is established, there is a timeless truth to this. This truth ought to be impacting the way we we pray today. You see, though there is a future physical kingdom that has not arrived yet. Today, there is a present aspect of his kingdom. That present aspect of his kingdom takes place in the, in the heart and life of everyone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior. There, there is a kingdom living here and now because wherever the king reigns, that's where his kingdom has come. And that's why Jesus said in Luke seventeen twenty one, the kingdom of God is in your midst. If Christ is your king, and you're a citizen of his kingdom, then his kingdom has come to you. So there is a present aspect, a spiritual aspect to his kingdom. That's why, by the way, at the end of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Obedience to the righteous commands of the Sermon on the Mount is synonymous, according to Jesus, with the kingdom of heaven. Because those who obey his righteous commands are in submission to the king. That's how Jesus presented it. So how do we apply these truths to our lives? How do we put into practice these truths so that we're praying as Jesus told us to pray? Let me offer some practical suggestions. First of all, it means that we pray for the Lord to save people. We're to pray for him to save people so that they will come under the kingship of Christ. There is nothing taught in scripture about just knowing Christ as Savior, but he doesn't reign over you. There, there is that, That's foreign to what the Bible teaches. Jesus called people to follow him. He didn't say simply pray a prayer of salvation and then do whatever you want and live any way you want and I'll see you in heaven. He said, come, follow me. Those who come to faith in Christ come by way of repenting of their sin and they turn to Christ and they turn with an attitude of, I don't want to continue in my sin. I want you to reign over me, Lord, as I trust you for my eternal destiny for my eternal life for forgiveness of sins i trust you and the merits of your righteousness and your death alone for me on the cross i'm not trusting in my church i'm not trusting in in my baptism i'm not trusting in confirmation i'm not trusting in my good deeds i have none i'm trusting in your death and your death alone on my behalf when when that takes place then a person has experienced the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Scripture even refers to salvation in terms of being transferred from one kingdom to another. Let me show you this. Colossians 1.13. Paul speaks of this when he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and, and the domain of darkness is the kingdom of Satan. Though that's a different word here, it means the authority of, of Satan, but it's the same thought. From the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what takes place at salvation. You're transferred from one king to another. So how should we specifically pray for people to be saved? 
I'm, I'm convinced that scripture teaches that we need to pray for God to do a work of grace in the lives of people. We need to pray for him to bring about regeneration and salvation. We need to understand as we're praying that no one leaves Satan's kingdom and enters God's kingdom because they just have figured this out, that it's up to them. We need to understand what scripture says, and this will help you in your praying, that all men are dead in sins and trespasses. No one can make the first move. No one has the ability. We are dead spiritually. And it's, I think it's important for you to see this. Pastor Steve has scripture ready to back up that statement, and we'll hear it in just a moment. While you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, I'd like to welcome those of you who have just tuned in. You are listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you missed the start of class, keep listening. At the end, I'll tell you how you can listen to the whole lesson again or order an audio CD or a cassette of this message. The message, due to radio time constraints, is given in three parts, but the cassette and CD will give you the entire message in one piece. Now let's return to class. Pastor Steve has just made a strong statement that no one can come to God on their own initiative. Why does he say that? Well, frankly, because the Bible says that. And here is Pastor Steve. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is deep theology, but I I think it's so seldom taught, and because of that we have such a, a weak view of God's sovereignty because we have a very weak view and improper view and defective view of man's fallenness. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul says this, this is the condition of man. This is the people, these are the people that we're praying for to be saved. But understand this and you'll know, you'll know how to pray. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you see this? All of us before coming to Christ were dead. That means we had no life in us, no capability of coming to Christ. We were completely dead. We were uh, like a corpse, can't respond to physical stimulus. So we could not respond to God. We were dead. We were not a little sick. We didn't have a little bit of goodness in us. We didn't have a little bit of ability to come to Christ because we can figure this out. We were dead in sins and trespasses in which, Paul says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is how we were, whether we believed in Satan or not. We followed him. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice this, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is what the Bible means when it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in this condition. Now, if Scripture stopped here, we'd all be doomed for hell. The next verse, in fact, the next statement is so profound that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones did a whole sermon on it called, But God, if you believe, verse 4, you are uh, one who believes in the sovereignty of God and can label yourself a Calvinist. You believe that God initiates salvation, not man. That's what determines. Uh, Calvinism has just taken, the name is taken from John Calvin, who emphasized in his teachings God's sovereignty and and election. If you believe, in verse 4, you believe that God initiates salvation, which is what Scripture teaches. Verse 4, but God, being rich 
in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgression, meaning we, we couldn't do anything. We were lost, hopeless, dead. Notice this. God did this. This is regeneration. He made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul adds, by grace you've been saved. It has to be by grace. You were dead. How can a dead person repent? How can a dead person believe? Can't. Could do nothing. He did it. When it says that he, that, that even when you were dead, he made you alive, that's what it means to be born again. Being born again is the same thing as regeneration. His life comes into us. He sends his life. He gives us a new divine nature. And he raised, verse six, and he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did God do this? So he tells us in verse seven, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has done this, saved us by grace, because quite frankly, there's no other way to be saved, but he's done it this way so that for all of eternity, we will be looking back, praising him for all that he's done, knowing that we did nothing to add to it. It was all of his grace. And that's why Paul adds these very famous next verses, Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Salvation, repentance, faith, regenerations, all God's gift, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no boasting, because dead men couldn't do anything. God gave us life. That's why you believe. Your faith follows regeneration. For we, he says, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's that's now our obedience, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All that I want you to see in this is that praying for the unsaved is not simply throwing up a prayer saying, Lord, uh, save these people. It's praying for God to initiate salvation. It's praying for God to do that work of regeneration it's praying, and of course, more more than Paul mentions here goes into that conviction of sin and awareness of God's holiness. But it's God who does the move. That's why you're praying to him. That's why you're praying to him. And you're asking him to bring his kingship into the lives of people who otherwise aren't interested at all. Secondly, praying for the kingdom to come also involves praying for ourselves and for fellow believers, that our our obedience to him would be an obedience characterized by, watch this, folks, joy, gladness, delight, without any reservation, so that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. See, that's how that's how we are to obey, because that's how obedience takes place in heaven. However, reality is there are some of us who do what God's word commands, but we do it with resentment. We're a little bit annoyed at the Lord. We may say, your will be done, but as someone said, we can say it through angry, clenched lips. Yes, I'll submit, but I don't want to. I'm doing it because I I have to, and it becomes a kind of a legal type of, of obedience. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, William Barclay tells the story of Julian, 
the Roman emperor who resigned himself to do God's will, but, but not in the way that scripture teaches. Here's what Barclay wrote. He said, Julian was the Roman emperor who tried to turn the clock back. He tried to reverse the decision of Constantine that Christianity should be the religion of the empire. And he tried to reintroduce the worship of the service and ceremonies of the ancient gods. In the end, he was mortally wounded in battle in the east. The historians tell how when he lay bleeding to death, he took a handful of his blood, tossed it in the air, saying, you've conquered, O man of Galilee. You've conquered, O man of Galilee. Is that the kind of obedience that, that you have? Kind of a reluctance, Lord, I'll, I'll do what you say. Yes, you've conquered me, but I don't, I don't want to do this, but uh, I'll do it because I don't want to be disciplined by you. That's not the kind of obedience that takes place in heaven. That's not the kind of obedience that the king wants from us. He wants it to be our greatest delight and our joy to submit to him. He wants us to to be saying, Lord, I delight to do this. I live to do this. I rejoice in doing this. My greatest satisfaction in life comes from obeying you. And when you begin to pray like that for yourself, in areas that you perhaps are struggling with, and you begin to pray for other believers like that, then you'll be praying in principle the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's bow for prayer. Has God's kingdom come to you? Is Jesus Christ Lord over your life? Have you ever professed faith in Christ? And if that profession is real, is he in complete dominance over your life? Have you submitted to his kingship? If there are areas of your life, and your life is characterized by this more than in one area or two, but your life is characterized by, by all kinds of disobedience, then you really need to examine your heart, whether you've ever trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Why, why call him Lord and not do the things that he said? Is he your king? Do you long to obey him? Gladly, without any reservation, it's the light of your heart, or are your plans and your agendas more important? If you've never trusted him as king, I, I urge you to call upon his name. Believe his atonement was for you and trust him for forgiveness. And will you commit yourself to praying for him to reign over people? Will you begin to... Uh, take these truths and incorporate them into your prayer life to pray for, for salvation. Pray that he'll do that work of regeneration and in dead hearts. Will you pray for him to do marvelous works of grace in your own heart and the hearts of your fellow believers? So start praying for yourself today, specific areas to come under his lordship. Pray for other believers to obey him so that they will be doing his will on earth as it's done in heaven. Father, thank you for these two petitions. And we pray, Lord, that these, um, these words are not said in vain. We pray that we might change, beginning today, the way we pray, the way we pray for people to be saved, the way we pray, Lord, for, for ourselves to conform to obedience. I pray for each believer here today, Lord, that you would work in our hearts so that the greatest delight of our lives would be to obey you. Not our will be done, but yours. And may it be done like it's done in heaven. And I pray, Lord, for those who may, know, may not know Christ. I pray, Father, that you will um, 
bring about regeneration, that stony, cold, dead hearts would experience the marvelous life that comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Wilberforce wrote in the late 18th century that when a man or woman possesses authentic faith in Christ, the pursuit of holiness is not drudgery, but a joy. That's because we know that God is all-knowing and all-loving, so His will for our lives will produce the greatest benefit for us. When we put that together with a God-given desire to see Him glorified, obedience becomes a joyful pursuit. You have been listening to Verse by Verse. It's a radio Bible class taught by pastor teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. To listen again to this program, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can listen online or sign up for our free podcasting service. Once again, that's versebyverseradio.org. You can also order a cassette or audio CD by calling 727-441-1714. Please leave your name and a number, and we'll return your call during weekday office hours. That number again is 727-441-1714. Time is running out, so I'll close with a brief reminder that Verse by Verse Ministries is a faith ministry which depends on the prayers and gifts of listeners who have first been supportive of their local church. 